to say, I know, uh, I know this is a lot of work, and um, as I was uh, getting ready to come over the last few weeks, I remembered back to our very first women's retreat, and we were up somewhere up in around Florence, I think. I can't remember who all was there, but um, but that was uh, anyway. So that was, I think, some of the genesis of of this. So it's it's wonderful to see um, what God has done done with it through the years under Canon Layton's leadership. Um, so thank you all. Um, it's a joy for me to see old friends and to um, get to meet new new people this weekend. So um, so just one sort of housekeeping thing. Feel free to ask questions uh, as, as we go. Um, and um, you've got some uh, references in your uh, handout. Um, and some kind of small group or individual reflection questions in there as well, as well as a lot of um, what I call pulling the thread scripture references. Um, so, because um, I, I, I think that that's such a, a joy uh, to be able to do that. Um, so, I, I want to talk before I begin uh, a little bit about um, kind of my journey, just very briefly. Um, but And the reason that um, my talk tonight is really just scripture-based. I mean, I'm just going to be doing an extended Bible study. And really, uh, I know some of you know this, so I apologize. You can put your heads down and take a little nap. For those of you that don't know it, um, though, um, a little bit of my story. So I did not grow up in a Christian household. My parents were not churchgoers at all. And I, uh, I actually started going to church by myself when I was nine years old. And um, I, I actually grew up in England, and so I went to the local Church of England church, and we had a lovely vicar who was um, really sweet and incredibly boring. <laughs> his own wife would sleep in the front pew every Sunday during his sermon. Um, so, so, um, so I had kind of this interesting beginning in my church life. For me, going to church that first time, walking into church that first time, was like coming home. Um, there was just something about it, and that feeling for me has never, ever left when I come into church and somehow in the presence of, of Christians, that sense of being home. And um, that was a huge blessing to me. But I will be honest with you, I really didn't know Scripture. I remember going to confirmation class with Sweet Vicar North, um, who I swear when I was like 10, I thought he was 180 years old. Um, but... Um, and I don't remember anything about it other than the fact after sitting through his class, his wife would give us tea and biscuits. <laughs> so that was kind of my original and my initial um, sort of introduction to scripture was that it was kind of boring. And mostly we just had to get through it so I could get my, my tea and biscuits. Um, and, uh, but I kept going to church. Um, and then I, after college... I joined the Marine Corps and uh, I got stationed at Paris Island uh, in Beaufort, South Carolina. And it was there that I started attending St. Helena's, which uh, for those of you that remember the previous dean, Frank Limehouse, he was the rector at St. Helena's um, when I started, my husband and I started attending St. Helena's. And he used to do a class every Sunday um, about the readings for the week. And I will never forget suddenly realizing that God's word was rich and sharper than any two-edged sword 
and suddenly realizing that God spoke through this Bible and that it wasn't boring, but that it was filled with God's word to us. And it, it literally changed my life. I resigned my commission uh, from the Marine Corps and I wound up in seminary and, um, and have, have been on this wonderful journey and had this amazing love affair with the Word of God ever since. And um, my, my hope is that you all have that same love affair with this book. You know, one of, one of the things I like to say about Scripture, um, my husband was deployed many times in combat zones, and I have literally a stack of letters this big. Every letter that he wrote me from his deployments, and, um, and just that connection and his words to me when he was far away, well, this is God's love letter to us. And I hope that if you don't already have it, that you find a study or a small group where you can really crack open the word of God and start having this um, this just love affair with God who loved us so much, as John 3.16 says, that he sent his only begotten son. Um, so, so getting to crack open the word is a great joy for me. And so the title of, of my talks this weekend are Feast on the Word, because y'all remember the saying, you are what you eat? Well, we know that's true with our physical bodies, right? <laughs> if I eat uh, Doritos all the time, I'm probably not going to be very healthy. Um, so we try and eat good. We try and eat well. Um, and the, what we eat spiritually is even more important than that. If you remember back in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus is being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, before he begins his ministry, um, one of Satan's temptations, right, is to make the rocks into bread, right? And remember, does anybody remember what Jesus says? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word, right? And so feasting on the word is just so crucially important because we are what we eat. Um, and so this, uh, this weekend we're going to be primarily in John's gospel, but we're going to be pulling a lot of those threads to see how Jesus fulfills these feasts of the Old Testament and to really kind of connect, I hope, in a deeper way with all that's going on. Um, and that when Jesus, uh, you know, is our Passover lamb, for example, what exactly are we saying there? When he says, I am living water, what exactly is he telling us? And, you know, we kind of know, but until we really dig into the Old Testament, we're missing out on a ton of stuff. So that's my hope uh, for the weekend. I will warn you, I am a huge follower of rabbit trails. So Hallett, throw something at me. <laughs> um, and uh, Canon Layton, if I go over, throw something at me. So, um, so anyway, uh, just as a, a little welcome, greetings from Montana. This is the view off my deck. Um, <laughs> so... Come and visit sometime. Um, I hiked up there, by the way. Um, and then um, the, this is also the view off my deck. Uh, uh, my household rule is Scott can't shoot anything off the deck in his bathroom. Because that's just not right. So, all right. Um, so, 
Uh, let's get, oh, by the way, Canon Lane said bring your Bibles. So ironically, um, I forgot my Bible this week. <laughs> so I was doing morning prayer before I caught my flight on Thursday morning, and I, and I was done, and I just popped that right back where it always lives and forgot it. So, um, so I will be this evening working out of the children's honey word Bible. <laughs> so... <laughs> So roll with me here. Um, anyway, um, so um, so we're going to be primarily in John. So I want to do a little background on John's gospel because I think that's important. So the, the name John, Iwanin, means Yahweh is gracious. And that is a huge part of, I think, John's gospel is this graciousness of God. Um, we, uh, he, he was the author, was uh, one of the disciples the brother of James, the sons of Zebedee there. Um, and we, uh, he, he likely wrote his gospel over the span of probably 20 years, um, beginning prior to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD and finishing it um, somewhere um, probably around 90 AD. Um, and if you remember, this is the same John that was imprisoned on the island of Patmos. Off the, off the coast near Ephesus. Um, and so, uh, so, you know, he, so also the author of the letters of John and then of Revelation in the New Testament. Um, one of the things I think is important to know about the, this, uh, the Gospel of John is that um, based on a lot of the sort of internal evidence, which means little clues we get within the Gospel itself, um, scholars posit that the original audience for John's gospel was a predominantly, uh, a pre- predominantly a group of uh, Jews who had started to follow Jesus. So Jewish Christians. And this is important. And it helps us understand why so much of what John talks about is absolutely steeped in the Old Testament. Because he's trying to tell these Jews who have started following Jesus This is why we follow him, because he is the fulfillment of all of God's promises from the Old Testament. Now, for a purely Gentile community, that message might not have resonated quite so much, but for a Jewish community who had become to follow Jesus, and that meant that they were being kicked out of their families. They were being kicked out of their communities. And by the time John finished this gospel, sometime around 90, In 85 AD, we know that the Jewish authorities had added a prayer, the Birkat Hamanim, which was the prayer against uh, heretics, basically, uh, specifically directed against any um, Jews who had started to follow Jesus. And it basically said, may they be written out of the book of life, which was basically the polite way of saying, I hope they all go to H-E-double-L. And so this is, this is what um, John's community was facing. And they were, of course, whenever we're under persecution like that, sometimes what's, what's human nature? Well, we'll just, we'll, we'll just stop doing that because it's easier to go along to get along, right? And John is saying, don't. Don't let this persecution make you waver in your faith. Don't let this persecution make you afraid. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of everything we have been looking for. And just because some people don't believe it, 
Don't let them take that faith away from you. So hold fast and be strong. And so this is why we're going to see a lot of this in John's Gospel. Um, now, I, I think there's a, a few things that are important. And in your um, handouts, um, you've got some questions that um, are kind of general. But I, I would lift these up to you anytime you open John's Gospel. Um, because I think they get to some of the purposes of John's Gospel. In, in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31... Uh, John says specifically, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John sets out to tell us exactly who Jesus is, to call us to respond to Jesus, and then he gives us a description of the benefits of following Jesus. And so those questions, those general questions in your handout, um, what does this passage teach us about Jesus? How does it help us understand him? And then how do I respond to him based on this passage? And then finally, is there a benefit? What's the, what's the benefit of belonging to Jesus that John is trying to tell us about in this passage? So those are some just great um, questions to keep in mind whenever you read John's Gospel. Now, um, just a, a real quick discussion about the outline of John's Gospel. Scholars will tend to break John's Gospel down into two main sections. The first section, basically chapters 1 through, through the end of 11, is what's called the Book of Signs. There are seven signs in John's Gospel. Miracles. But they're signs because they're more than just a miracle and isn't that nice. What they do is they point us to the truth about who Jesus is. So they're signposts to, about, to talk, tell us about who Jesus is. And then the second half, 13 through 21, is called the Book of Glory because that's where we see the ultimate glory of God revealed on the cross and in the resurrection. But... There's another way of looking at John's Gospel, and it has to do with the feasts. John's Gospel is, much of the uh, action in John's Gospel is centered around these Jewish feasts. There are three Passovers, the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Hanukkah, or dedication, in John's Gospel. And the, 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 the action in John's Gospel tends to focus and to kind of revolve around these feasts. Um, and again, it's John's way of saying, look, these major events, these things that we celebrate year in and year out within Judaism, these things that we um, remember because they're, they're you know, pivotal events in the life of our nation, are all fulfilled by Jesus. So if we really want to celebrate, we have to celebrate in Jesus Christ. And so we'll also see a little bit, I don't have tons of time, I've literally got a semester's worth of information that I could give you and I'll try and keep it short. Um, but they, we'll see this movement as well. So, um, so one of the um, really big um, sort of themes of, of John's Gospel, one of these Old Testament connections, is the Exodus. Okay, so this is going back to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The Exodus was the, really, the defining moment 
in the life of Israel. It was God's mighty act to bring the people out of slavery and genocide in Egypt into the promised land. It is while they're on that journey that God solidifies them through the covenant into a people of priests to serve our God. And so to be, to be an Israelite meant that you were connected viscerally with the Exodus. And one of the things that's fascinating about John's Gospel when you really start digging is how much of the Exodus defines and informs what we'll see throughout John's Gospel. So again, one of these pulling threads thing. To understand a lot of what Jesus is telling us through John's Gospel, we have to know Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Ezekiel and Zechariah and the Psalms. <laughs> just, just to name a few. Um, so, um, so tonight I want to start um, by talking about, I'm going to actually go a little bit off script from, uh, from the original um, sort of layout that I'd given uh, Deborah. Tonight I want to start with the Festival of Tabernacles. So we're going to look at Tabernacles tonight. We're going to look at dedication or Hanukkah tomorrow morning. And then tomorrow afternoon, we're going to look at the three Passovers and see three, three of the di- kind of different themes that are uh, brought out um, in John's Gospel with relationship to Passover. So tonight, we're going to be in the Festival of Tabernacles. So if you turn to John chapter 7, please. Um, in my book, it's page 1135. <laughs> And I've got this cute picture of a giraffe eating bread. Um, so, oh. uh, all right, I am, I, we don't have time, so I am not going to read John chapter 7 to you. I would encourage you in your individual time to read chapter 7, chapter seven and 8. Um, but, so I'm going to kind of do some, some skipping over and let you read them in fullness uh, on your, uh, later. Um, but the Feast of Tabernacles is uh, fascinating. And um, it's uh, just a, a tiny bit, and we'll kind of open it up more as we go. But the Feast of Tabernacles is one of the major feasts that God prescribed in Leviticus chapter 23, beginning in verse 34. Um, and it's the sort of final feast of the Jewish year given in Leviticus. It takes place, five, it begins five days after the end of Yom Kippur. So Yom Kippur is, a major, is another really important feast. And what's interesting, though, is John doesn't ever talk to us about Yom Kippur. And the reason for that is we'll see him conflating the ideas of Yom Kippur, which was the great day of atonement and penance in the, uh, for, for Jews. Um, he conflates it with the third Passover. And so we'll talk more about that tomorrow. Um, but uh, this, this Feast of Tabernacles is also known as the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Sukkot. That's the, the Hebrew word. And basically, it's, um, basically you, you make a little, um, uh, you, you put up a little tent um, uh, or a little sort of shelter made with palm branches and sticks. And there's all these rules. You have to be able to see daylight through the top. 
so that you can see uh, the, do you, does anybody, can anybody tell me why you think you would have to be able to see through the top of it? Think back to the Old Testament. Not the stars. Right, the fire and the cloud. Because remember, when God was leading the children of Israel through the wilderness, he was a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. So their booths have to have, and still to this day, to make a proper booth or tabernacle or sukkah, you have to have, so you can see the light through it, so you can see God and know when he gets ready to move you, know when he wants you to stay, know that he is with you, even in the wilderness. And I love the hymn that they uh, played right before we started. But the, um, you know, and when I'm found in the desert places, though I walk through the wilderness, blessed be your name. They were in the wilderness, and they were blessing God's name because he was with them. So, um, so this is uh, this is part of the feast. It's the uh, the Jewish month of Tishri. I mean, remember the uh, Israelites were on a lunar calendar, not solar, so they're dating uh, shifts based on that. Um, but this is the feast that celebrates the forty years of wilderness wandering. But more specifically, um, it celebrates the giving of the covenant. Um, and so it's a really wonderful festival, but it's also a harvest festival. The time when the last harvest of the year was brought in, the grapes and the olives and the other fruits were brought in. Um, and so it also uh, it celebrates God's provision for his people in the wilderness, but also just his provision for them in the harvest. Um, because in, um, in Israel, of course, it's sort of semi-arid. And if you don't get the rains, your family doesn't eat. And that, that was the reality at that time. Um, but it's one of, it was actually in Jesus' day, this was the, probably, according to the historian Josephus, um, who was uh, writing in around um, 85 to like 95, this was, um, this was one of the most, this was the favorite feast of the year for the Jews at that time. Um, because it was a lot of fun, and there was a lot of spectacle going on. And, um, and so this really important, joyful feast. Interestingly, 1 Kings chapter 8, um, the Feast of, of Tabernacles is also the date when King Solomon dedicated the first temple. Um, so you can see that it was always an important festival for them. Um, but for, for the Israelites, it was a time when they celebrated all of God's gifts to the people. Um, but the word tabernacle, as we get into John now, we see this not in John 7, but in John chapter 1. And God and the word became man and dwelt among us. Well, the translation of that Greek word dwelt is actually the word that was used to translate God tabernacled among us. Sometimes you'll see it translated as he pitched his tent among us. And what that has to do is basically when God, um, when they put up the tabernacle in the wilderness, you all remember before the temple there was the tabernacle. And does anybody remember what happened on the day they consecrated that? The presence of God, the Shekinah, the glory of God came down upon into the Holy of Holies 
like fire and cloud. And they knew that God was with them. We move forward to the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings with Solomon. The day they dedicate the temple, guess what happened? The Shekinah of God came down into the Holy of Holies. It was so overwhelming that literally the priests had to get out because they, they were just overawed by the glory. That word Shekinah is an interesting word too. It has to do with almost weight. So like this great weight of God's glory came down and the people knew that God was there. And so this idea of tabernacling goes back to that. With Jesus' incarnation, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. God is with us. The full glory of God came down and is with us, but as one of us. So from the very outset here, in the prologue of John in chapter 1, John is saying to us, God is with us in the person of Jesus Christ, of Jesus the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that we have been waiting for. Um, and so this, uh, this is from the beginning what John is telling us, which is why this Feast of Tabernacles in 7 now is so important for Jesus' work. Because do people get what has happened? No, they don't. Um, and so something significant is happening. And um, we're going to take a look here at three big things that happened during the Feast of Tabernacles. There's a, fe- there's a water ceremony, a fire ceremony, and a willow beating ceremony. If you're a Harry Potter fan, think of the whomping willow. Um, so, um, so we're going to, how these things all point to Christ. Um, so as chapter 7 opens... We see um, this hilarious scene uh, that his, his brothers have gone to the festival and they were punking him out about, well, are you going to go and show yourself openly? And, uh, you know, Jesus was fully God but also fully human. And he had these brothers who probably was like, he's awfully full of himself. Um, and uh, so they're kind of punking him out. But Jesus does go to the feast. And why does Jesus go to the feast? Because he's a good Jew. <laughs> And that's what he does. He's in synagogue every Sabbath, right? He is showing, he is being perfect Israel. Everything that God had asked the Israelites to do, but that they had not done, or that they had failed in, Jesus fulfills. He completes it. He is perfect Israel. Um, And so he goes to the temple for the great feast of tabernacles. Um, and, but we see that there is a lot of hostility. Um, we know that the Jewish leadership is already trying to hunt him down and kill him because he's doing all of these miracles and he's upsetting their apple cart and he's doing things that he does, they don't think he ought to be doing, like healing people on the Sabbath. And, well, who would want to have something foolish like that happen, huh? Um, so um, so we, we see this, um, this hostility is already growing. Um, and, of course, one of the things that, uh, that they are always poking him about is what work are you going to show us? And, of course, the irony is, is that he has been showing them all along. But over and over, as we see in verses 6 and 7, he says that my hour has not yet come. 
Now, this is the Greek word uh, kairos versus chronos. Now, I'm, most of you are probably familiar with that, but chronos is chronological time, like our watches. Kairos is a Greek word that basically means the uh, perfect moment, the fulfillment. This, again, this idea that when it's supposed to happen, it happens, and not a moment before, not a moment after. So it is this perfect moment that we're waiting for. So we're already seeing, and this is going to be important as we move through, the kairos has not come yet, but it will. Um, and uh, so, so we, uh, we see him already pointing to the glory, the cross there. Um, but what's interesting in chapter 7 is um, Jesus goes to the temple but he doesn't, John doesn't record a miracle that he does. And this is unusual because mostly in John, uh, these seven signs are followed by teaching. Um, in chapter 7 with the Feast of Tabernacles, there is no sign. There isn't a miracle. All Jesus does is teach and have an argument with the, the religious leadership, um, which is really just teaching. And why do you think that might be? Is it because he just didn't feel like it? The reason he doesn't do a sign in chapter 7 is because he is the sign. What's tabernacles all about? The glory of God coming into the temple. What's going on? The glory of God has come into the temple. His presence in the temple in chapter 7 is the sign of this part of the gospel because God is here now. The glory of God is in the temple. Um, and so he, just his presence is the sign there. Um, and the people marvel at his learning because he hasn't studied. But he hasn't studied because why? He's God the Son. He kind of knows it. He wrote it, right? So... Um, and, and so, but this, this, this funny sort of this, this gap between what we, the reader, knows, living this side of the resurrection, and what the people who were there that day knew. Um, and um, Jesus, uh, he actually starts talking in verse 18 about the plot to kill him. And everybody thinks he's kind of nuts, right? Because the average Joe doesn't know what the religious leadership is plotting. Um, but he refers to a healing that he did. And this is actually probably the healing from chapter 5. Um, and I, I forget to, forgot to turn my stuff. So here we go. All right. <laughs> la, la, la. All right. Um, oh, I got to go back real quick. Rabbit trail. Okay, so um, before, as this gospel gets going, part of how we know Jesus fulfills um, is from the wedding at Cana. So rabbit trail backtrack here. So the wedding of Cana, we're all really familiar with that story, right? Well, what's interesting is um, that in that story, Jesus has them fill up the stone jars, right, which were used for purification. Um, in Jesus' day, the, uh, the, the Pharisees were so concerned about ritual purity that they wouldn't, uh, the, and, the, and this goes back all the way to, the, to, the, to Leviticus as well, but they couldn't use, for ritual purity reasons, they couldn't use things like clay, because uh, it could be, they considered it could be contaminated. Stone couldn't be contaminated, they believed. And so these stone jars, Jesus has them fill up with water, right? And he turns it into wine. All right, so that's a great miracle. But what does it point us to? It points us to the fact, basically, that Jesus is the messianic bridegroom. 
He's here. So again, a lot of these prophecies that we were waiting for have come now. He is the one who has come. The bridegroom is here, just like John the Baptist said. Why uh, the bridegroom has come. So now I step aside. Um, but also, I think for this concept of fulfilling, Jesus literally fills these stone jars, has them filled to the brim, and then he turns them into the finest wine. He is going to fulfill the law and turn it to its ultimate purpose and for the whole reason that God gave it. Because everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus, as I tell my youth group kids, Jesus is the answer. Um, <laughs> um, and, and he fulfills it here. So, all right, sorry for my little rabbit trail there. Um, there is a booth that has been built uh, in, this is modern day Israel, a photo of booths. It's, it's a big festive occasion. Um, all right, so, um, so, uh, and um, so all, all of this controversy, um, but this, this healing was from the, the chapter 5 with the healing at the pool of Bethesda. Um, and of course, uh, just ironic that a healing would make people say, you're not, you, you must be doing something wrong. Um, which is just very sad how we can close our hearts to this. All right, so I want to get now to verses 37. Starting in verses 37 here um, and see what my children's Bible says. <laughs> so, um, on the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. Um, and he's talking, of course, about the Holy Spirit there. All right, so the last day of the feast. Um, there's a couple of uh, there's there's two there's two options here. So the Feast of Tabernacles was a seven day feast, but then they add an eighth day on, and it's this wonderful concept. Basically, they call it the day of lingering. When we're having such a good time, we're going to stay an extra day. <laughs> <laughs> and so this this is formalized because they want to have this extra day. So the last day of the feast. And John doesn't tell us whether he's talking about the seventh day or the day of lingering. And there's lots of different scholarly um, discussion about this. But um, I, I tend to fall in the camp that says it was actually the eighth day. Because the ceremonies only went for the first seven days. The eighth day, they didn't do a couple of major ceremonies of this, of this Feast of Tabernacles. And so it's into this gap now, while Steve people are still gathered and they're still celebrating, but they're feeling now the loss of these wonderful ceremonies that took place, that Jesus says, you're never actually without these if you're in me, because I am the ultimate revelation of all of these parts of the feast, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age." So I think that Jesus will, will said what we're going to be talking about now on the eighth day when the ceremonies had stopped but the people were still there to linger, to be with God just a little longer before they went home. And this great word that Jesus says, wherever you go, I am with you. And so this celebration continues. So what were these big rites? Well, the first was a water rite. Um, and basically the priests, every morning during the seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles, they would take this huge golden ewer, a ceremonial, a ceremonial ewer, 
and they would have this procession with shofars and trumpets and tambourines and all of the people who gathered for the feast and they would all troop down singing psalms to the pool of Siloam. The pool, uh, Siloam means scent and it's near the temple and, uh, and they would carry this giant ewer and they would also carry an etrog and an etrog, think of a lemon on steroids. It's a giant citrus fruit. And so the high priest would have the golden ewer and somebody else would be carrying this giant lemon. Why? Why a giant lemon? Because they brought the harvest in. So they're giving thanks for the harvest as, as well as praying for rain for the next year's harvest. But this water right, then they would get, bring, they would collect the water from the pool of Siloam um, which was spring-fed, and then they would process back to the temple, and they would pour the water out of the ewer onto the, ta- onto the altar, and the water would flow down. Water out of a rock? Ring any bells? Right. All right, so what is this feast, what is this festival, what is this part of the festival remind us of? Well, it's Exodus 17, water from the rock, when Moses strikes the rock with his staff. It's also, though, in Numbers chapter uh, 21, uh, they show up in uh, Be'er, which is a desert area, and God tells the, the leaders of the tribes to dig um, and there's a well there then that springs forward. Basically, the water white rites were a remembrance and almost a reenactment of God's provision of water for the children of Israel in the desert. So in the middle, and, and if you've ever been to some of those desert places, you, you would understand what an incredible miracle that was. So they were reenacting that, celebrating it again, remembering it as though they were there again. The etrog, though, the big citrus fruit, a prayer for the a thanksgiving for the harvest that they just had, and a prayer for rain for the next year's harvest so that they would have food. And again, this idea that God provides for his people, that without God's provision... None of us would survive. Without God's provision, none of us would even be. So this water right was reminiscent of that. But more than that, by Jesus' day, um, water and manna, the other provision piece in the wilderness, right, had become symbols of God's Torah. And that word Torah, we tend to think of as the first five books of the Old Testament, right? But in Hebrew, that word means instruction. But it's more than just instruction. Within Hebrew, it carries with it this sort of depth of meaning. And basically, the understanding of Torah is that God has revealed his innermost desires and instruction to his people. So this water by Jesus' day was also understood to be almost a physical manifestation of God's Torah, because what did the water symbolize? That God wanted his people to survive and get to the promised land. So it was also a reminder of the Torah, of God's provision for his people, of his revelation to his people, but of course also it was a reminder that what happened in the wilderness, 
they got the law, right? Um, and, um, but, but it also, by Jesus' day, um, this water right had come to take on um, some huge prophetic pieces. Now, those of you who used to study with me know I say this a lot. Um, so one of the main connector points with the water rights by Jesus' time was Ezekiel chapter 47, which is one of my favorite passages of scripture. <laughs> so um, Ezekiel 47 um, is this wonderful image that Ezekiel is given while he is in captivity in Babylon of the renewed temple when God himself would come and build the temple. And he, he is taken um, by an angel to see this and he sees coming out from the temple, from the Holy of Holies, a river and it runs by the altar and then it goes out towards the Dead Sea and as it goes it gets wider and deeper even though nothing else begins to feed it. And when it gets to the Dead Sea, the sea becomes alive and it then has as many fish in it as the Mediterranean. It is filled up with fish, and what was dead becomes alive. And that image is an image of when God returns to fulfill his promises and to redeem his people, when God himself comes to be among them and to be their God. And so by Jesus' day, this water rite was also about eschatological things. It was about the end times. And so Jesus says, what? I'm living water. Who is among us? God is. What is happening? God has come to redeem his people. Everything that Ezekiel had talked about in, in chapter 47 is happening now. Now we're waiting to see the final end of it, but what we were waiting for is already beginning. But in a way that we can't necessarily see yet, but he is living water. So all of this brought forth. Zechariah 13, though, tells us another piece of this. On 13, verse 1, Zechariah 13, 1, On that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. So there was also an understanding that these water rites somehow also were part of the end times cleansing of people from sin. And that's going to be important when we get to the third Passover, so remember that. Um, and so um, also Zechariah 14, which by the way, Zechariah 14 was actually a prophetic word that was given during the Feast of Tabernacles in, in Zechariah's day. So Zechariah 14 connects very heavily with John chapter 7. But then also Isaiah 55, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You that have no money, come and buy and eat. Isaiah 12, surely God is my salvation. I will trust in him and will not be afraid. Sing it if you know it. For the Lord God is my strength and my might. Isaiah 43, um, uh, 1 through 44, 8, the new exodus. Isaiah 43 was looking forward to the new exodus when God would come again, would raise up a prophet like Moses, which Deuteronomy tells us, and that he would lead the people in a new exodus. Now the problem with this idea was how did many of the Jews in Jesus' day understand this new exodus? Killing Romans, basically. Jesus is telling us, though, that this new exodus is going to be much bigger than just overthrowing a temporary worldly oppressor. 
Jesus is telling us that the new exodus is what? Freedom from sin and death itself and into the heavenly kingdom of God. And of course, all of this language, too, really comes into our baptismal services. The baptismal liturgies that we use when I'm pouring out the water and praying over the water, we're recalling all of this because we know that that exodus is bigger than just temporary worldly powers. It is the ultimate destruction of sin and death, which Jesus alone does for us. So all of this tied into these water rites. The next ceremony that was important in, uh, in tabernacles is this willow beating ceremony, which is hilarious. So I, the, the, they just had a good old time. So I'm not saying we should do this, but it sounds like it would be fun. So the willow ceremony was really interesting because it was popular procession. And this was kind of radical because um, you all may be familiar that in the temple there were different areas, right? So if you were a Gentile, you could only come this far. If you were a Gentile who, uh, who had become, you know, who'd been uh, circumcised and brought in, you could come this far. If you were a woman, you could come this far. If you were a man, you could come this far. And only if you were a priest could you get into the inner bits. What's fascinating about the willow ceremony is that it was a procession with anybody that wanted to join in, except Gentiles, interestingly. Um, and Paul has something to say about that in the dividing wall of hostility. But, um, but um, basically women, Jewish women, Jewish men, kids, anybody, could take part in this willow ceremony. And they would all go out and they would cut branches from willows. And then they would process in to the inner portions of the temple up to the main, the high altar itself. And they would have this huge procession with psalms and tambourines and everything. And they would all traipse around the altar seven times, waving their willow branches. And then when they had done with their seven times around, they would beat the altar with their willow branches. Kind of weird, but I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm wanting to give it a try at my parish. I don't know. Um, the vestry might object. I don't know. They would beat the altar, and then when they were done beating the altar, they would all put their willow branches around the altar so that they would overarch it and form a tabernacle over the altar with these willow branches. Now, there was probably also an element of willow branches are a tree that needs a lot of water. And water is a big theme of the Feast of Tabernacles. So probably also it was some way of praying for water, for harvest, for the next year. Um, but the, uh, the main connection, though, was how did Moses get water out of the rock? He struck it. They're striking the rock of the altar. And remember, the altar had to be made of rock. Striking the rock of the altar to bring forth water. Now, here's another fascinating connection. By Jesus' day, there was a, a very popular mythic rabbinic teaching that believed that the altar sat on the top of the Mount of Moriah, and who remembers what happened at Mount Moriah? The Akedah, the binding of Isaac, when God tells Abraham to take his son and offer his son, and then he stops him and provides a yeah, provides a ram, yep, instead. And 
the rabbis had come to believe, um, and this, for this you need to understand a little bit of the cosmology of, of Judaism, which believed that in Genesis, God had separated the waters, right? So that there would be land. And he put some of the water above this sphere that was the earth. So that's how we get rain, because he lets a little bit of it out at a time. And then they believed that they had put some of the water under the earth. And guess what the top of Mount Moriah was in this mythic understanding? It was the plug that kept all of the water in the subterranean realm kept down. And so part of this water from the rock was that at the end of time, when God came again in glory, um, this water would then flow when God basically opened the plug so that there would be plenty of water and that they would never have to worry about water for harvest again. So this willow beating ceremony. Now why, how does Jesus fulfill that? And for this we need to jump forward a little bit to the third Passover. What happens to Jesus on the cross? Spear to the side he is struck and what comes out? Blood and water, right. And curiously, another interesting rabbinic tradition by Jesus' day was that Moses struck the rock twice, and the first time they believed that the rock bled, and then the water came out. So even in some of those weird rabbinic traditions, we see God pointing to the cross. And so this is the willow ceremony and how God fulfills it. Um, And then um, as we move into chapter 8, which is a continuation, um, and I'm hurrying here, as we move into chapter 8, what we see is Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 8.12. The other big ceremony of, um, oh, that's, so nowadays, instead of willow whomping, They walk around, and and you'll see this still in the streets of Jerusalem. They wave the lulav. So they make make basically this like um, pom-pom sort of thing um, of different different branches and different pieces of foliage, and that's an etrog that he's holding. And they'll wander around in procession waving their lulavs and, and, you know, shaking their etrogs, um, uh, which I think is just wonderful. But, so, but I am the light of the world. So the other big thing and why Tabernacles was one of the favorite feasts is that every night during the seven days of the feast at sundown, and again, this is something I, I wish we'd get to do, the priests got to dance with fire. <laughs> and they lit the temple. Josephus talks about it. And Josephus says, if you've never seen tabernacles in Jerusalem. You have not lived because this was so amazing. But every night after sundown, the priests would do these fire dances. They would light these huge censers, these huge torches, giant torches. Um, and, and the fire would blaze out into the night and the priests would do, um, would do these dances with basically flaming torches. Um, so I've always imagined it kind of like Russian Cossacks with fire. Um, but, um, and, but this, that Josephus says that you could see the fire from the temple during tabernacles 
um, clear, um, be, you know, like 20 miles away, and he lists some towns that are like 20 miles away. Um, because it was so lit up. And remember, they didn't have streetlights, so there was no ambient light. So what, is, what an amazing thing this was. And of course, what did this symbolize? God is the pillar of fire leading the children of Israel. God's Shekinah being on the tabernacle. God's Shekinah being on the temple. This sort of um, reminder that God is with us in fire. And Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. All right? You don't have to have priests doing goofy dances with fire. And I always wondered if they like set themselves, if any of them ever set themselves on fire. This is the way my brain works. Um, and, and whether like there were acolytes standing by with buckets of water. Um, so, <laughs> so um, or if they knew stop, drop, and roll back then. I, who knows? But, um, but Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He is the one who fulfills this ultimately. Um, and if, if you don't want to be in darkness, come to me. And remember, he, I think that he is saying all of this on the eighth day. There was no more water ceremony. There was no more fire ceremony. And so the people are having that sense of like, wow, that, it kind of like, you know, sometimes we experience when Christmas is over, kind of that like, oh, that was kind of sad, it's over and it'll be another year. Um, and, uh, and there's the, kind of that big letdown. And Jesus is saying, look, I fulfill all of this. Everything that Tabernacles talked about, I am the fulfillment of that. I am the light of the world. And in chapter 9, he's going to give sight to a blind man, a man who had been born blind, who is blind from birth, who had never seen light at all, sees light because of Jesus. I am the light of the world. If you want to see, don't feel sad about the fire ceremonies ending. Come to me and you will have God with you always. If you want the living water, don't be sad that the ceremonies of water have ended. I am living water. And of course, this takes us back to, to uh, chapter 4, right? And the discussion with the Samaritan woman. Does it matter if the temple goes away? No. Because in John chapter 4, what does he say to the Samaritan woman? You've worshipped here on Mount Gerizim. And we've worshipped in Mount Zion. Now, we're right, you're wrong. But, um, but, he says, we will worship in spirit and in truth. And what is the water a symbol of? The spirit of God. What is the fire a symbol of God? The presence of God wherever we go. He is always with us. And so Tabernacles um, is just this amazing festival um, that points... <laughs> Um, and I wish I had more time. I've got plenty more notes, but I'm going to end here because my time is up. But, um, you know, to, to, to really understand what's going on in tabernacles and all of the Old Testament connections is to understand more deeply what Jesus is telling us when he says, I am living water. To understand more deeply what he is saying when I am the light of the world. Because he is taking us all the way back to that wilderness time. And why does that matter for us? Well, because we may not have to walk through a physical wilderness, but as our, that hymn said, the song said, how many of us go through wildernesses spiritually in our lives? Well, because of Jesus, we don't get to just be surrounded by that once a year for seven days. Because Jesus has fulfilled all of that, this is our living reality every single day.
We are in his presence every day. Tabernacles is ours to celebrate every single day because he is with us. He is in our wildernesses. He has fulfilled all of that. And just from a, like, just purely like, what does this mean about the Bible? And I'm going to tell you one of my giant pet peeves because I face this all the time up in Montana. Um, There are not two gods. There is not a mean God of the Old Testament and a nice God of the New Testament. There is one God who has been consistent in everything that he has said from the day he spoke light into the world. And so that means that there is nothing, you know, Jesus, it drives me nuts. Um, So um, I just, I, I deal with this a lot. There are not two gods. There is one God. And the wonderful thing is when we start seeing these connections, what we understand is that everything God said in the Old Testament was what? Pointing to Jesus. All of that, when we really can learn to read the Old Testament, what is it telling us about Christ? Because that's what all of that was about. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all of it. He is the apex of history. And in Revelation chapter 5, um, you all may remember the angel comes in with the scroll and it's written on the front and the back and it's got seven seals on it. And there is weeping in heaven because no one is worthy to open it. And then, of course, um, and, and of course, sometimes I know people are freaked out by Revelation, but it's really great news. Trust me. Revelation is good news. Um, but that front and back is the biblical way of saying this is all of, all of human history is written on this scroll. And the only one who can open it and bring it to fulfillment and bring it to completion. And what is that completion? What, okay, and, and again, we have to go back to the Old Testament for this. What is the completion in God's world? Go back to Genesis 1. And on the seventh day, God rested and he looked at everything and said, it is very good. If we want to, you know, the only one who could open that scroll and bring whole of human history into God's eternal Sabbath, which is not just sleeping, it's not just a nap, it's joy and righteousness and it is everything that is, it is the perfect expression of who God is. The only one who can open that is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who was slain, and yet who is victorious. All of human history finds its meaning and its completion in Jesus. So all of the Old Testament. And ladies, all of your lives, and I know sometimes we wonder, does my life have any purpose? I don't know what your individual purposes in this life are, but I know that you are part of the ongoing book, of the ongoing story of the Acts of the Apostles. And our rest is in Christ, the one who opened all of that. And so when we look back at tabernacles, what we see is all of that is fulfilled in Christ. And that also means, though, when we go and we read the Old Testament, how do we read it? Through the lens of Jesus. Because it only finds its ultimate meaning in Jesus Christ. Everything points to him, both forward and backward. He is the apex of history, and as I tell my youth group, Jesus is always the answer. (laughs) Amen.
Oh.